Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Adventures of Mr. Chris. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cruz. In this podcast series, we delve into the past, present, and future dynamics of the end of the world and ask why this concept continues to have such cultural resonance. From apocalyptic religious narratives in the Book of Revelation to the zombie apocalypse and doomsday preppers, the end of the world remains an important cultural idea. And from our current global coronavirus pandemic to catastrophic wildfires, hurricanes, and widespread social unrest, it's little wonder that more people are worried than ever about the end of the world. In this week's episode, we'll look at billionaire bunkers and how the elite are prepping for the apocalypse. The idea that the super wealthy and Silicon Valley elites are busy building secret bunkers in places like Australia and New Zealand has been a popular media story. But what we see is when you peel back the slick PR stories and glossy photos, what we find is a lot of smoke and mirrors and very little substance. We'll also explore how climate change is creating a hotter, drier future from Australia to California, and how these global trends are driving more people to be prepared for disaster. And we'll also touch on the fascinating intersections of apocalyptic ideologies, techno-libertarian elites who profit from technology-driven social disruptions, and explore conservative religious preppers in the American Northwest, better known as the American Redoubt where God, guns, and prepping go hand in hand. As always, I want to welcome those students listening from my end of the world class at CSU Chico. Thanks for tuning in. So with no further ado, let's jump right into the end of the world. Hi, everybody. Professor Cruz here. Welcome to our week four lecture for the end of the world class, where we're going to be looking at Billionaires, Bunkers, and Apocalyptic Ideologies this week. So as we've been reading in Bradley Garrett's book, Bunker, these end-of-the-world fears that drove both the first and the second doom booms that we've been talking about are very much alive and well today. And this mix of fear and dread that he talks about helps us understand some of these sort of contemporary obsessions with underground bunkers. And we read about some more examples this week with Trident Lakes in Texas, the example of the sort of lost Tasmanian bunker down under, and the kind of media-hyped billionaire doomsday bunker building craze um, embodied in places like the Epitome. Now, as we saw, Trident Lakes and some of these other exclusive bunkers are really catering to a very small group of political and economic elites who have a very strong trust in technology, although... If you listen to the individuals, they're often pitched as if they're kind of open in design for the average person, not just the super wealthy. And what we see here is an interesting kind of flip side to what we were talking about last week with technology. So if you remember, we talked about the Gorgon Stare and some of these other surveillance technologies. <clears throat> Excuse me. And the idea that many people look to underground bunkers as a way to kind of hide from these expanding corporate and government forms of surveillance and kind of high technology observation. But in the case of places like Trident Lake, what we see is that actually technology is seen as a tool to really help people survive doomsday scenarios and not something that's to be feared. So in a sense, we're seeing the flip side of these um, social connections and relationships with technology and bunkers. Now, as Garrett mentioned, it's um, important to keep in mind that there are a number of what he calls kind of techno-libertarians or Silicon Valley elites who have been instrumental in the past two decades in really developing, implementing, and pushing 
a lot of new disruptive technologies into society, many of them which we're quite familiar with, companies like Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and PayPal, Twitter, and YouTube being some of the more popular examples that have come out of this sort of techno-libertarian Silicon Valley circles. Now, as Garrett argues, to really understand some of the underlying fears about the end of the world, driving people to build bunkers, and be concerned about sort of social instability leading to a possible collapse of society, we really have to understand and explore the cultural ideologies behind those. And one of the important places that Garrett points to is a book called The Fourth Turning by William Strauss and Neil Howe, which was written in 1997. And in that book, they posit what they call a generational theory of societies going through processes of change, upheaval, reconsolidation, and change again in roughly 80 to 100 year cycles. So basically the idea is that every generation, let's say you live roughly 80 to 90 years, will go through these four stages or these four turnings as they, as they called them. And this idea has really been kind of latched onto in um, many of the prepper and kind of survivalist circles who believe that an impending collapse of society is coming and that's what they're preparing for. Um, and in some cases, we'll see that um, social instability may actually be a good and necessary thing. So as Garrett argues in the book, throughout human history, when civilizations have reached what seems to be a stagnant phase, apocalyptic thinking surfaces. So you can see in this diagram here kind of an illustration of the Strauss-Howe generational theory. So you start with the kind of first turning, which is the high, as they called it, of a new um, social and political order taking shape. Then you have what they call the second turning or the awakening phase, when you have kind of new regimes and new values that come um, into place and challenge kind of an existing social order. Then you have this period of unraveling or the third turning, where essentially social norms and rules and politics start to break down and you see the shift from the high through the awakening starting to now change into something different and that leads into the fourth and final turning which is the crisis when things essentially start to fall apart under the stress of challenges from another generation coming up behind which will then produce this first turning again so their idea is that every 80 to 100 years as a country, we go through these four phases. And it's this fourth turning, the winter phase, that we're particularly interested in. So consider the following passage from this book, A Fourth Turning, in 1997. The next fourth turning is due to begin shortly after the new millennium, midway through the 2000 decade. Around the year 2005, a sudden spark will catalyze a crisis mood. Remnants of the old social order will disintegrate, political and economic trust will implode. Real hardship will beset the land with severe distress that could involve questions of class, race, nation, and empire. Yet this time of trouble will bring seeds of social rebirth. Sometime before the year 2025, America will pass through a great gate in history, commensurate with the American Revolution, Civil War, and twin emergencies of the Great Depression and World War II. The risk of catastrophe will be very high. The nation could erupt into insurrection or civil violence, crack up geographically, or succumb to authoritarian rule. Thus might the next fourth turning end in apocalypse, or glory. The nation could be ruined, its democracy destroyed, and millions of people scattered or killed. 
or America could enter a new golden age, triumphantly applying shared values to improve the human condition. We cannot stop the seasons of history, but we can prepare for them. So it's quite interesting to hear this sort of framing of what they saw the future of America looking like, essentially right on the cusp of where we're going now with the 2007-2008 economic crash, fitting very well with this sudden spark in 2005 they mention, and certainly many of the descriptions of social unrest fit what we're seeing on the streets today around the country. So this theory of cyclical change has been promoted by both sort of populist and political elites. And as we read, um, Steve Bannon was a former political advisor and media strategist for President Trump before he fell out of favor, um, has been a particularly vocal supporter and advocate of this idea of the fourth turning, um, and even produced uh, a documentary called Generation Zero based on these ideas. Now, what's important, he points out, is that Bannon and others saw this kind of moment from the third turning, which is the unraveling, into the fourth turning crisis as a period where they could ride on kind of social discontent and particularly populist discontent in order to try to seize the moment and steer where things were going. And this is precisely what Bannon's strategy was in trying to get President Trump elected in 2016, so that they would be in the perfect position to essentially kind of steer the ship of state, as it were, through this final crisis period, and then, in their mind at least, give birth to a new first turning, a new high, which as we've seen from Bannon and Trump and others, is grounded in the language of law and order, particularly from a kind of conservative political perspective. Now, it's interesting to note in 97, Strauss and Howe also wrote that history is seasonal and winter is coming. So those of you that are Game of Thrones fans will recognize that final phrase there. So this book of theirs came out um, just one year after the first Game of Thrones book was published. So they're both in kind of a same touchstone moment in terms of American cultural politics. And you can see there on the diagram on the lower right, um, from a conservative website that's taken um, this idea of the fourth turning and tried to apply it to different American historical events. You see that they've put the 2008 financial crisis as one of the signposts. They have, so at the present when they did this in 2015, they were predicting that a future American war may happen sometime in the next decade. And then in 2028, at the what they saw as kind of the end of this current turn of cycles, the poss possibility of Christ returning and the biblical tribulation. So you can see how some of these um, apocalyptic end-of-the-world views get mapped onto what is essentially a secular theory of social change. Now, as Garrett also mentions, there's very strong links, and we've seen this already in some of our other discussions and readings, between apocalyptic right-wing populism and belief about the end of the world and prepping circles that all kind of share some common philosophies that um, can be mapped onto this idea of the fourth turning and the cycles we're in now. So, for example, James Wesley Rawls, who's the founder of the survivalblog.com and um, sort of a, considered a survivalist patriot writer, talks about this idea of an American redoubt. So, as you can see here from this diagram, the American redoubt is essentially Wyoming, Montana, Idaho, and then the eastern parts of Oregon and Washington. And this has both been sort of the stronghold of, kind of, let's say, the cowboy frontier spirit that's left in the country, 
as well as where, as we've seen, both um, religious doomsday cults and armed militia groups all tend to be concentrated in this one particular area that Rawls and others refers to as the American Redoubt. For example, Radio Free Redoubt, which is one of the kind of media publicists for um, the movement in this area and this idea of the American Redoubt, describes sort of this region as an emerging safe haven and refuge for God-fearing, liberty-loving patriots. So you get a sense of both the American patriotism, the haven from the dangers out there, right? The fear and the dread of the unknown and the foreign other and the underlying Christian theology all kind of coming together in this area. Now, it's also worth noting that although the American Redoubt is kind of the most commonly discussed and talked about area where we see these um, kind of conservative politics, religious politics, um, and armed militia movements most densely kind of clustered. Um, there's also a smaller parallel that's sometimes referred to as the Appalachian Redoubt that's centered basically along the Cumberland Plateau and runs down sort of the southeastern part of the Appalachians down into parts of the south and east. So the idea is that it's not solely um, in the northwest where these areas are congregated, but certainly that's the strongest area and in much of the kind of prepper circles that's seen as the safe area to go to. So just want to give us a little sense of what some of the folks who are going to these areas, um, what's motivating them and how do they see this area as the ideal location to sort of bug out to, if you will. We have a breaking news protesters are on the streets of Los Angeles right now. Alarm over the future of America can be seen almost daily in the headlines. The loss of privacy, constitutional freedoms, and out-of-control government spending are just a few of the reasons sending shockwaves across the country. Christian bakers in Oregon are... Religious persecution is on the rise, and that's leading many believers to look beyond the ballot box and start voting with their feet. Dave Westbrook moved his family out of the city 12 years ago. I was pastoring a city church, and it was through my own Bible study and my own prayer life that I became convicted that I needed to do something. We needed to live in a different situation. The area he chose is attracting more and more like-minded families every year, the Inland Pacific Northwest. It's an area which includes Montana, Wyoming, Idaho, and the eastern parts of Washington and Oregon. Members call this movement the American Redoubt. Ultimately, we believe God led us to the Northwest. I think that people recognize tough times are coming, and it's causing them to think about their situation. It's causing them to think about how they live now, the security of their family, the stability of society, and how they're gonna to relate to that. But I'm finding something else, too, and that is that more and more people are resonating with this idea of getting back to the land, of living a simple, more natural way. And I mean, that, shouldn't, that doesn't surprise me because the way I see it, the Creator wired us for this. Idaho is a paradise for nature lovers of all kinds, and it's also one of the least populous states in the Union. And that's a big draw for the kind of people that would come to the American Redoubt, not necessarily because they want to get away from everybody, but just because they feel like it's more free for them to live and work and worship as they please. Where your kids can run free. Um, they're spending time with, you know, livestock, with the horses, they're in the garden. We saw how quickly things deteriorated. 
John and Sarah enjoyed life in Florida until a hurricane changed their outlook forever. They asked we not show their faces. How fragile our civilization is. And uh, I witnessed people get into fist fights over bags of ice. And I realized that uh, if things were to get worse in this country, uh, I need to be someplace safe out of the big cities. The couple invested their life savings and recently moved to the American Redoubt. And so far, they're very happy with their choice. So right now I can say I'm excited about the new challenges and, and the new life that we're going to embrace, that we have embraced, that we were read, prepared and ready to face. What challenges are coming our way, I don't know, but I know that God brought us here and God's going to bring us through any troubles that we do have. Welcome, and thanks for listening to Radio Free Readout, the emerging safe haven and refuge for God-fearing, liberty-loving... The growth here has spawned radio programs, websites, and even its own silver coins. Todd Savage moved his real estate business from San Francisco and now helps people looking to make the move. The core of this movement is to help like-minded, conservative Christians move to the Redoubt area, eastern Washington, Idaho, Montana, and sometimes Wyoming. And it's, it's a wonderful place to be to educate your children and to have freedom. Since the re-election of President Obama, we've seen a huge increase in demand. But it's not about being exclusive. It's about liberty. The American Redoubt is meant for freedom-loving folks that are accepting of everyone, regardless of their religious preferences, their skin color, even though predominantly they're conservative Christians coming here of all races, colors, and creeds. And it's not just families. Businesses are moving in as well. One notable growth industry, gun and ammo manufacturers driven out of other states by restrictive gun legislation. There are now 180 in Idaho alone. But Dave Westbrook asserts the biggest draw is spiritual. But the environment is just so much more conducive. And I think particularly it's so much more conducive to our spiritual walk with God. And, you know, that's, for us, for my family, that's the number one reason why we did this, because it was a way of life. From Northern Idaho, I'm Chuck Holton for CBN News. So, as you see there, there are a variety of possible motivations that are driving people, but um, the highlight there is both the idea of religious liberty, political liberty, and a community of shared um, values. Now... If we kind of jump from the American Northwest to down under in the South, we get another complicating picture to this story that we've been looking at about bunkers and fears of the end of the world. And that is the issue of climate change, which we'll touch on again um, later in the semester as we look at many of the different end of the world scenarios that are driving people's fears. Australia, in particular, has been hard hit in the recent years and the past decade by wildfires similar to what California has been dealing with, but on an even larger scale. So, for example, February of 2009, Australia witnessed what's come to be known as Black Saturday, where you had um, fires spread out all over the country due to increasingly hot and dry weather, and about $4.5 billion worth of economic damage and losses occurred. Now, at the time, that set a record for what was going on in Australia, but unfortunately, a combination of inaction on the part of Australian government and citizens and continued sort of warming climate made that essentially a warm-up for what happened this past year in 2019-2020 at the fire season. 
which came to be known as the Black Summer that ravaged uh, much of Australia. So you can see the visualization here on the right between May of 2019 and May of 2020, how much of the country was on fire at different points. Now, estimates are that there were about $100 billion in damages and losses to property, including 6,000 structures that were burned down, at least 30 people that died, and an estimated billion animals that were killed, particularly out in the bush areas. Now, as Garrett notes, part of the reason that Australia is a sort of a test case for um, prepping and climate change and preparedness is that almost 90% of the residents live in urban areas that are highly vulnerable, not only to fire, but also to having supplies disrupted. And as he argues, Australia is teetering on the brink of a disaster. So to give you a sense of what this would look like um, outside of an Australia scale, you can see that same image of the fires in Australia overlaid on Europe. So essentially what we see is from northern Spain all the way up to the United Kingdom, all the way into parts of Norway and Finland and Scandinavian regions, and then all the way over into the Baltic and Caspian to parts of Georgia and almost Azerbaijan. So a massive amount of Europe would be on fire if we transpose what's been going on in Australia over to what's been going on in Europe. So in a context of California, it would be like essentially everything from the southern coast up to essentially the Canadian border being on fire. Now, as he notes, Australia is facing both longer dry seasons and rising temperatures, and these are not only causing the sort of dry desert areas to expand, but it's also making it more likely that these fires will happen more frequently in, in the future. And this certainly makes it harder for your everyday Australians to try to address change because they have no control over the global climate. And unfortunately in Australia and other places, coal mining and other fossil fuel interests have um, done a pretty good job of preventing any serious actions to address climate change. So this gives us what um, scientists and scholars refer to as a wicked problem that has no single simple solution, but has many different complicated moving parts. So as an example, um, scientists had predicted by 2020, so by this year, that the extreme fire days would have increased by about 65% in Australia. But even more alarming, the same studies have suggested that by 2050, so just barely 25 years from now, the extreme fire days will increase by 300%. So you can imagine if a 65% increase in extreme fire days in Australia is producing these kind of massive extended fires all over the country, what that would be like if it increased to 300%. Now, as Bradley notes, um, based on the trip that he and his wife uh, sort of took around part of the country and working on reporting for his book, uh, parts of rural Australia, and we might say this of parts of many rural areas, um, residents are more resilient than urban areas. As he notes, Aboriginal communities in Australia particularly are more resilient and adaptable just because they've been dealing with um, living in the bush and bushfires um, for as long as they've been on the continent. And also, living in these more remote areas, people are more likely to be used to having you know, limited access to supplies, being in remote areas for more extended periods of time. 
but that's not the case in urban areas and that makes Australia particularly vulnerable to these kind of disasters. And so as he notes, it's not surprising that Australians are increasingly more interested in prepping and emergency preparedness. So he takes us to the example in his kind of search for Martin Poehler's um, sort of lost bunker in Tasmania as one example of what he calls this media focus on economic elites who are supposedly building these secret multi-million dollar bunkers in places like Australia, Tasmania, New Zealand, places that are believed to be more sort of safe in the event of some kind of a global social or economic or political meltdown. As he mentions, Martin Pullen, who was a wealthy American attorney, um, saw Tasmania as basically a safe place to go in the 1970s, kind of in the middle part of that first doom boom, to flee from potential nuclear disaster. And so you can see a picture of the abandoned bunker down there on the left. Um, but as Garrett notes, importantly, from around 2012 or so, there seemed to be an increasing focus on these billionaire bunkers. And that was part of what got him interested in doing the research for his book. But what he found is that maybe there's more hype than reality to these stories. And he suggests that the 2012 arrest of Kim.com, who founded the Mega Upload website, and was arrested in his panic room, the Red Room, in his New Zealand mansion in 2012, and the sort of myth that the Mayan calendar was going to be ending in 2012. Um, these kind of created a media obsession with these economic elites who were supposedly going to the southern hemisphere and building these emergency survival shelters. You can see a picture of the red room there on the bottom right um, from Kim.com's mansion. But as Garrett argues, this media craze about billionaire bunkers is actually mostly um, smoke and mirrors. And in particular, Forbes magazine seems to be one of the sources for many of these kind of smoke and mirror stories and uh, obsessions with the lifestyles of the rich and famous. So, for example, Forbes did a series on this um, Czech bunker, the Opidum, this kind of secret elite bunker that was supposed to be the biggest um, billionaire bunker in the world. But what Garrett found when he kept tracing down lead after lead, company after company, was that really it seemed to never really actually exist was a lot of smoke and mirrors, slick promotional pamphlets and CGI rendered images of what the final feature would look like, um, but not much actual real substance. And you can just see a couple examples there on the right from 2011, an article in Forbes highlighting elite bunkers and Armageddon ready bug out vehicles and evasive driving schools, tactical combat trainings and safe houses in, um, you know, remote areas. And then a more recent article from Forbes from just this year in March looking at billionaire bunkers who are preparing to escape from disaster. So this is a good example of a video that was produced by Forbes to highlight this supposed billionaire apocalypse shelter.
So, to watch that video, you would think this is a swanky, upscale, end-of-the-world fallout shelter. Um, but as Bradley Garrett argues in his attempts to try to track down places like this, um, it's really smoke and mirrors. So if you'd like to see for yourself uh, sort of what's behind the curtain of the Opidum, you go to their website, theopidum.com, and you are presented with a screen like this that uh, you need the code to get into. So I wrote to them and got the code, 8636. So if you would like to have a look behind the curtain at this supposed largest billionaire bunker in the world, uh, feel free to visit the website, put in that code, and explore for yourself. So as, as we've been learning about and as Garrett talks about, this obsession with bunker building is certainly not new. We saw this going all the way back thousands of years ago in parts of Anatolia and in the American Southwest and in many other areas. But this kind of current craze of bunker building attracts a diverse social and economic group of people that bring a variety of end-of-the-world concerns to the table. Economic collapse, social unrest, climate change, nuclear war, we saw a number of those kind of going through the opening slide of that last Forbes video. Now, two of the largest bunker companies that Garrett um, sort of talks about and what we've been reading so far are Hardened Structures and Rising S. And later on, we'll be reading about Atlas Shelters, which is a third kind of rival company with Rising S. And you can see the kind of landing homepage of both of the company's websites there below here. And as these kind of businesses illustrate, there's still a booming market for underground shelters and bunkers. Um, and it's something that's not just limited to the ultra wealthy or to people that want to hide out in the American redoubt of the Northwest. So one of the figures we looked at from Rising S is the owner and what does it look like to be inside um, one of these bunkers in the construction site here? Well, let's take a look. Josh and Brooke Greenhaw are seeing their new home for the first time. I love the secret doors. This $175,000 second home is a solid steel secret bunker designed to withstand bullets, bombs, even a nuclear attack. Walk sideways. The front door buried 13 cool feet underground. Everything going on politically has really motivated me to, to want to pur purchase the bunker. Yeah, so we put it right here. The couple voted for Donald Trump. They admire his tough talk, but want to prepare for any conflicts it might cause. I think this is great. We're not concerned about the Trump factor. It's the, the other people in this world that we're concerned about. The demand is just, it's crazy right now. Clyde Scott usually sells two bunkers a month, but sold six in one week. He says sales grew in Obama's second term, but nothing like this. Since Trump's got in office, I didn't think it was gonna be like it is. Our sales have doubled. This one right here is gonna have air filtration, water filtration. Bunkers start at $45,000, but can cost millions, complete with swimming pools, bowling alleys, even a gun range. One customer allowed us into his underground bunker if we promised not to reveal its location. So these are beds, bunk beds that That's people correct. would sleep in. And it can sleep mattresses. 75 and has enough canned and freeze-dried food to last two years. 
There are three <laughs> hidden escape routes, a blast valve to protect from explosions, and a decontamination room. You guys have thought of everything. You have to. This is life or death at this point. And for the green haws? They can destroy our home, but we're still alive and we're okay and we're safe. An insurance policy for these times, 13 feet underground. Tammy Leitner, NBC News, Murchison, Texas. And here's uh, one more look at some of these uh, shelter businesses, in this case, um, Atlas Survival Shelters. We want to close tonight with a profile of a true underground movement. There is nothing new about predictions that the end of the world is upon us. But as Carter Evans shows us, there's plenty new about how some people are preparing for it. What began as a pipe dream for Ron Hubbard... Can you hear that? ...has become big business underground. We call this the, the backyard bunker. These days, the fear market is booming. You can't build them fast enough. I can't build them fast enough right now. It's better to have a shelter 10 years early than five minutes late. But unlike those Cold War era concrete bunkers with just the basics, these survival shelters come fully loaded. It's got everything a house does. It's just 20 feet underground. Luxury bedrooms, big screen TVs, game room, underground pool. You can have anything you want. You've actually seen people put jacuzzis in these? Oh, God, yeah. Hubbard is selling safety and style in a world with no shortage of apocalyptic possibilities. In the 60s, they only worried about the, the nuclear attacks from Cuba and Russia. Now we have to worry about biological attacks or chemical warfare, terrorist threats, uh, economic crash, nuclear fallout, nuclear threats from Korea and China. When people think about survivalists and survival shelters, uh, they think about people who might be crackpots. I thought there would be some Looney Tunes that would show up, but no. These are professionals. Like Robert Acosta, a Los Angeles businessman who's banking on his own $85,000 bunker. You gotta take precautions and you gotta look out for your, your family. Just in the future, case. Just in case. At worst, it's a very nice guest house. Yes, it is. And that's another thing too. When I have relatives that come visit, sorry, I only have three rooms and may have to put you in the uh, bunker. <laughs> Whether it's missiles or market meltdowns. It's amazing what we can do underground. I guess the ground's the limit, huh? There's no limit. <laughs> I mean, I hope it never happens, but mathematically, it all adds up to Armageddon. But down here, Armageddon can wait. Sit back and watch TV and, and enjoy it. Carter Evans, CBS News, Montebello, California. So, as we saw from both of those examples, there are a number of different reasons that may motivate people to put in these kind of background bunkers. But the broader story, and part of this focus on the secret billionaire bunker building crazes, is really about the logic and the money that's being made by these merchants of dread, or what author Naomi Klein refers to as disaster capitalism. And we can think about this as a powerful force that's thriving on all of these technological disruptions, social instability, political conflicts, and uh, fear, as we heard mentioned in that video there. So as Garrett argues, the paradox and any truth behind the stories was that tech giants of Silicon Valley, or some of them anyway, were making a fortune from the systems they felt might trigger a disaster. Certain quarters of techno-libertarian philosophy map onto prepper philosophy, where they seem to see crisis not simply as inevitable risks to mitigate, but as necessary and productive periods of resetting and renewal, right? And this goes back to the idea of that fourth turning 
um, in this series of cycles that the American country has gone through. So if we think about some of the leading figures in Silicon Valley and kind of the tech world and the philosophy that shaped their activities. Peter Thiel from PayPal, who has net worth of about 2.1 billion, believed his goal was to create a digital currency to replace the dollar. Elon Musk of Tesla and SpaceX, worth about 79.4 billion, believed that if, if you're not failing, you're not innovating enough. Zuckerberg, founder of Facebook, worth about $98 billion, <clears throat> has the motto of move fast and break things. And Jeff Bezos of Amazon, worth about 183 million, or 183 billion, sorry. You know, if you're going to invest, you're going to disrupt. So for all of these figures, the idea is that their model of business is built on breaking existing structures, creating new innovations, and making a fortune out of that process. Now, we may certainly benefit from some of those innovations, but the question that Garrett and others want us to think about is, um, what are we losing um, and what is sort of the trade-offs to their vision of how the world should and could be organized? And more importantly, the way that they're profiting from the disasters that their technological disruptions and innovations are also unleashing. So we can think about all of the ways that Facebook and Twitter and other digital media is being used to um, spread propaganda by Russian and Chinese and American um, propaganda outlets, or the way that things like PayPal and cryptocurrencies are creating an entire dark web um, of illegal and questionable activities. It's precisely these kind of questions that Garrett wants us to think about um, when we're considering the philosophy behind some of these tech innovators and the fear and dread that the instability in society that some of these um, technologies have created, how and what are the benefits and the downsides. So he argues that individuals like these um, embody a philosophy um, that was first laid out in a 1997 book called The Sovereign Individual, which posited economic and social crisis leading to the eventual collapse of the state and the rise of a cognitive elite. And these cognitive elites are precisely the people like Thiel, like Zuckerberg, like Bezos, and others. So the idea is that the rise of things like, let's say, Bitcoin or Facebook's Libra are attempts by these self-professed cognitive elites to put their techno-libertarian philosophy into practice by you know, creating rival alternative currencies, um, and other means of communication, interaction that essentially go beyond the reach of government or state controls. And not just beyond the reach of state and government controls, but allow the sovereign individual new forms of political freedom. Now, as Garrett argues, and as we've seen, these philosophies have strong echoes in the United States and across the Atlantic um, to the, the UK and many other parts of Europe, where as we saw in recent years, uh, many of the leading architects of Brexit profited immensely from um, the economic and political kind of disorder and chaos that came from essentially the UK pulling out of the EU without an actual plan in place. Um, and in fact, by speculating that the British pound would lose its value, individuals made quite a fortune in speculating on obviously a number of currencies, not just the pound. 
So as he argues, figures like Bannon, William Rees Mogg, who was one of the authors of The Sovereign Individual, was a conservative member in the British Parliament before he died recently, um, and Peter Thiel. Individuals like this embody a new kind of apocalyptic nationalism that sees globalization, culture, religious diversity, and non-European immigrants as a threat to this kind of imagined earlier golden era that must be restored in order to save the nation. So in the context of the United States, we can think about phrases like make America great again, or the marchers in Charlottesville a few years ago saying we will not be replaced. Right? So there's this fear of the other, of the outsiders. We heard this echoed by the couple who were buying um, a shelter from Rising S that they're not worried about the Trump factor, they're worried about everyone else. Right? So it's that fear of those who are not like you. And it's that same fear and the kind of dread of what happens if you're not safe against those kind of threats that's driving people, for example, to the American Redoubt of the Northwest. So these cultural fears, um, when we add them on top of you know, a biblical worldview that believes the book of Revelation is the literal word and will actually happen and maybe is kind of already in the process, we're seeing the seals being broken, is really driving particularly a religious sort of conservative patriotic mentality um, individuals subscribing to this, to this prepping and bunker building philosophy. And that's something we're going to delve into um, in our coming weeks when we turn to um, this next um, series of readings about fear itself, where we'll actually delve much deeper into the psychology and research about fears in America. Well, that wraps up our episode four of this End of the World podcast series. Next week, we'll be jumping into a slightly different topic where we look at the issue of fear and how fear plays in the American psyche and, more importantly, how fear and concepts of dread play into our beliefs and thinking about the end of the world. As always, you can find more information about content discussed in this episode in the show notes below. Thanks for joining us, and I'll talk to you all next episode.